All right. Well, thank you, choir. Well, that'll get your blood pumping. If it wasn't pumping already. If you have your Bible, I invite you to go ahead and open with me to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 26 together. That's the whole chapter. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to use one provided by the church, you'll find right there in the back of the pew in front of you in the rack there, the shorter dark brown books there are the Bibles. You'll find this on page 772 or 812, page 772 or 812 of the pew Bible. It's Acts chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I'll just mention that one of my least favorite things to do in life and one of the things... Uh, that I am least skilled to do is to gift wrap a package. Okay, can anybody relate to that? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, you, you, you might as well ask me to make, you know, origami out of duct tape or something or, you know, a paper airplane out of scotch tape. I mean, it's just, I, I'm, I feel like I'm wrapping myself up like a mummy in it by the time I'm finished. And so, Two things I'll say about that. One is, I think one of the, the very best, most brilliant inventions in the history of mankind was the gift bag. Uh, so what a wonderful thing somebody came up with there. But the other thing is, because it's meaningful to actually wrap the gift sometimes, when Christmas comes around in particular, I usually need a refresher course uh, from one of the ladies in the house on how to wrap a... Uh, how, how to wrap a package in at least not, you know, the least embarrassing way, basically. So sometimes we need a refresher course on gift wrapping. And I mentioned that way at the, I mentioned that at the outset because <clears throat> sometimes when we come to worship, when we come to the Bible, we, we read it or we hear it preached, we need to be reminded that not always are we the ones receiving the greatest gift but that sometimes we need to package up the gift, wrap up the gift, and deliver it to other people. And that's been our focus, right? In this study on the book of Acts, we're, we're orienting ourselves to be missionally minded, a church on the move, a church that recognizes our, our principal work is outside the walls of the church and beyond Sunday. That is, we, we deliver the gospel as a gift to the world that we're a part of. And sometimes what we need to receive from the Bible is, is a refresher course, instruction on gift wrapping so that we're, we're equipping ourselves to deliver um, a package to other people. And so um, this morning, as we look at Acts chapter 3, We'll have in the back of our minds um, the reminder that Jesus told his disciples at the very outset of the book that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came on them, and then they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And I suggested, as we opened up this study, that the book of Acts is really a story about the church living as powerful witnesses. Acts 1.8 is really kind of the summary of the book, 
the outline of the book, and that's really what it's about, the church living out what it means to be uh, powerful witnesses, going and witnessing in power. And a prime example of that um, comes in this morning's sermon, which I've titled A Miracle with a Message, and it's from Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 26. Let's look there together now, and I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Verse 11, when he clung to Peter and John, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let's pray together. 
Well, Lord, we thank you as always for your word, that it is living and active, that it can and does pierce to the very innermost parts of our being, Lord, that it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart, and we ask that you would get there in us today. You know every need represented in this room, and you know how your word needs to be applied to each heart, and we ask that you do that as only you are capable of doing. And so we ask, as always, that you would speak, O oh Lord, your word, by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory. And Lord, would you just move me out of the way and use my mouth as the instrument by which you want to communicate to us, your people. In Christ's name, amen. And you may be seated. In the previous passages, we learned that at the day of Pentecost, Peter preached a bold sermon and approximately 3,000 people came to faith in Christ that day. They repented and were baptized. And the church developed a very close-knit community. We read about that last week. Um, Devoted to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. Uh, devoted to the breaking of bread and prayers, and they were also devoted to one another, if you'll recall, even to the point of selling property and possessions and the distributing the proceeds to anyone who had need. They regularly spent time together in one another's homes, eating meals together and otherwise just sharing a common life together. And one aspect of their life together was that day by day they attended the temple It said right there in uh, one of the previous verses, I think verse 46 of chapter two. And so as this chapter opens in chapter three, we read that Peter and John went up to the temple to pray at an appointed hour. Um, It it says uh, it was the ninth hour, about three o'clock in the afternoon, one of the appointed hours of prayer for the Jewish people. And again, a helpful little reminder, as I suggested last week, that a life that is devoted to prayer, that is constant in prayer, would include some elements that are free and some that are formed, some that are scheduled, some that are spontaneous, and so forth. I gave some of those paradigms. And here we see Peter and John, that part of their prayer life includes scheduled prayer. And they're going up to the temple at the appointed hour. And it might be helpful for us to make note of the fact that Peter and John went up to the temple to pray not to preach. Uh, they were going about their normal routine, right? And, and then just responding to the needs and opportunities as they arose, paying attention and noticing. That's one of the themes we've been trying to thread through this series here is that we want to live our life on, min, on mission with our eyes, our heads up, our eyes out, paying attention to people around us, to notice opportunities that there might be there to minister grace in some small way, to speak life into somebody or hope or whatever the case may be. And this is what Peter and John are doing. They're going up to pray because it's the hour of prayer. And um, as one New Testament scholar, uh, uh, Daryl Bach says, God took the initiative to bring needy people to Peter. Peter took the initiative to bring Jesus to someone who needed him. And that's what happened. They've gone up to pray. 
God has brought to them someone who had need. They brought to him Jesus who could meet that need. And so the story takes shape here around a man, a miracle, and a message. And so we'll take it under those headings. And first of all, we'll notice the man. And we notice right away that he cannot walk and he cannot work. Those are the two most notable things about him. Look in verse 2. It says, a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. He cannot walk and he cannot work. It says he was lame from birth or literally from his mother's womb, as it says in some translations. And so there's no mistaking that his condition, it wasn't the result of an accident or injury as a child. It wasn't that he contracted some disease that then left him lame. He had feet and ankles that never formed properly or completely in the womb. From the time he's born, he's been in this condition. And he's carried to the gate daily to ask for alms, alms just being money for the poor. So he is totally dependent on the goodwill of other people for his needs to be met every single day. And it's doubly that because he depended on another group of people to pick him up and carry him to that point where he can beg for money from the other group of people. He's in a situation where he is totally unable to advance his own cause, to meet his own needs, to make his own way. And there's a picture in there for us that on a spiritual level, of course, that describes all of us and our inability to advance ourselves toward God. But that's another sermon for another day. But we, we also learn in chapter 4, verse 22, this man is over 40 years old. This has been his lifestyle for years and years and years. And just want to stop and appreciate that for a moment. If you can try to get your head around that. I mean, it, chances are when he reached the age, we don't really know this, but chances are when he reached the age when he otherwise should have been working and providing for himself, and he's no longer a child, you know, just living in his parents' home and being taken care of by them. His friends or family, whoever it is, begin taking him to a place where he can beg. A 40-year-old man, and this has been decades, most likely, that every day, this is his life. And, and no doubt, this practice has become very routine. Right? I mean, that he, he just, he might be good at asking. He might know, you know, who, who do you ask and who do you not ask? And what are the ways you can ask in a way that really, you know, brings in the change, so to speak. But you know, this is just, this is just routine for him and the way he lives his life. And that's the man who would encounter Jesus that day. And of course, he does by way of a miracle. He asked for alms and expected to receive some. Look at verses three and five. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And then verse five, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So it, it's just worth noting, I think, that he never even asked to be healed. 
He asked for money, not for a miracle. Now, obviously he was glad for the miracle, right? We saw his reaction, uh, walking and leaping and praising God. He was elated and thankful for that when it did happen, but he didn't ask for it. No reason he would ever even imagine that was an option, right? I mean, why would you ask for that? But, but the reality is that Peter does not give him what he asked for. And he does give him what he does not ask for. Peter does not give him what he asked for. He does give him what he does not ask for. And once again, a helpful little highlight maybe in our Bible, because this can be our experience in our own prayer life. where We're asking God for something we earnestly want. We think he wants to provide us provide for us and doesn't give us uh, what we ask for, he may give us something wonderful that we don't ask for and don't even notice it because we're paying attention to what he did not give us. But that's how this story unfolds with Peter. He doesn't give him what he asked for. He gives him what he does not ask for. Look in verses six and seven. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. It goes on to say, of course, he leaped up and he entered the temple walking and leaping and praising God. And this caught the attention of the people in the temple. And they were amazed because they recognized him. They knew this was the guy who's been sitting day after day, year after year at the temple gates. It makes you wonder too, makes me wonder, maybe I'll make you wonder now. Makes me wonder if this was the first time Peter had passed this man. It says Peter, John, the apostles, the church, they were going to the temple day by day together, right? We read that just at the end of chapter two. This man daily sits at the gate of the temple. If not the apostles, certainly some among the 3,000 believers have passed this man. He's so familiar, everybody recognizes him. And yet this is the day that the miracle was to be. And it's reminiscent of the account in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26, the time when Jesus healed a paralytic man. You may remember that story where his friends also brought him where he couldn't go himself. They tried to bring him to Jesus. The crowd was so big, they couldn't even get to him. And so they lowered him down on his bed through the roof in the presence of Jesus. And you may recall there that, that the, what Jesus tells him is, your sins have been forgiven. Well, once again, that wasn't what he was asking for. And uh, that stirred up a fuss among the Pharisees, if you recall the story. Who do you think you are? Forgiven sins. Only God can forgive sins. Well, Jesus said, well, you know, what is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or easier to say rise up and walk? But just so you know that I have the authority to forgive sins on earth, points to the man, says, take up your bed, uh, rise up and walk. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> man walks out healed and forgiven. Pharisees don't know what to do about it. But see, in both that case and the case in front of us right here, there is a message in the miracle itself. Now, in this case, there's a message in the miracle. There's also a message Peter has after the miracle, and we're going to look at both of them. But there's a message within the miracle itself 
And that is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is alive. He is seated in heaven at the right hand of Father. He rules over everything in heaven and earth and under the earth right now, presently. His lordship extends to every dimension of human experience, private and public, personal and institutional, politics, economics, spiritual, emotional, and yes, even physical. That it's no thing to him. As I've said before, the one who created all things out of nothing in the beginning, that he sees a man with bad feet, he just makes good feet out of him. Man, it's just nothing to Jesus. Because he is Lord over that dimension and spontaneously he has that in his power and authority to do. And as he exercises lordship in those ways, he demonstrates his authority to forgive sins just as he did with the paralytic man who took up his bed and walked. And he demonstrates his power and plan to restore all things. They're just little glimpses. We know from our own experience, there are plenty of people, people who name the name of Jesus, who aren't healed, who are still, you know, walking around with illnesses or ailments or whatever, um, that that's not always the story, the way it plays out as it did with this lame man. But the point is this undeniably, that in those episodes, in those moments, he gives one more reminder, he is Lord. And then he has the authority to forgive sins. He has the authority and the, and the absolute intention to bring about in the end what he promised to bring about. And so it goes here. And that's the message in the miracle. But there's also, of course, here, the message after the miracle. And part of what, again, we're wanting to glean from this uh, for those of us who have already placed faith in Jesus Christ is we want to know what is the package we want to wrap up and deliver to other people who haven't met him yet. As, we, as we're looking at taking the gospel to the world, how do we do that and what do we say? And we get another example um, of it here. In fact, you know, it's a wonderful icebreaker to just tell a lame man to get up and walk. So, I mean, you, you could try that one. Um, but, but if not, uh, Peter at least has part of the plan and that when the man goes walking through the temple, leaping and praising God, of course, people notice him. And not, not only was that probably not typical you know, temple behavior. I'm assuming most people don't go walking and leaping about and praising in, in that fashion. Uh, but also, like it said before, he recognized them as the man who sat at the gate asking for alms. And as Peter did on the day of Pentecost, he notices a crowd is assembling. He takes that as a cue. He needs to preach the gospel. Don't you love it? And I, I do want to pause here and say parenthetically, I'm, I'm really, I'm sort of saying that tongue in cheek um, but we really ought to take guidance from that. That if and when we have some among us who are just bold enough to go out on the streets or wherever, see people who need prayer, maybe need healing and pray for it, see if God won't do it and then see if that person won't stir up a fuss <laughs> and draw attention to himself and when he does, preach the gospel. Well, let's see if it works for us. It certainly did for Peter. 
So first of all, as, as, we're, as we're gleaning from that, Peter's presentation of the gospel, let's notice, first of all, that Peter makes much of Jesus. And I'll say, I'll go ahead and preview here. If you, if you really just like get nervous, you don't know what to say when, you, when it comes to sharing the gospel. If you just say, Jesus crucified, resurrected. If you get those three words out and stumble over everything else, see if God can't work with that, okay? Because you'll see that's in the, that's, th- those are themes um, as we go through the book of Acts all the time when they're preaching the gospel. A crucified and risen Lord Jesus, but he makes much of Jesus. Look first in verses 12 and 13 and then verse 16. Uh, Verses 12 and 13, he says, and when Peter saw it, that is the crowd assembling, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus. And then verse 16 And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter is quick to deflect any thought that he and John deserve credit or praise for what has just transpired. This man was made whole in the name of Jesus. And in the course of the message, Peter also refers to Jesus in verse 14 as the holy and righteous one. Verse 15, the author of life. In verses 18 and 20, he is the Christ. In verse 22, he's the prophet whom Moses says is to come. And so in Peter's previous sermon, it was out of the mouth of David. Now out of the mouth of Moses, that Peter says there is one to come and he is greater than David and Moses. And that one is Jesus. And if we want to preach the gospel to people like Peter did, first of all, we need to make much of Jesus. And second, Peter tells them that apart from Jesus, they're guilty before God. And this, we probably want to draw our attention to. It seems to be the part that lots of contemporary Christians and preachers in particular would rather leave out, but Peter didn't leave it out. I'm just telling you what he said, right? This is, as I heard somebody say, expository preaching is basically just holding the microphone up to God's mouth and letting him talk, you know? And so this is what he said. They're guilty before God. Look in verses 13 and 15, sorry, 13 through 15. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, Now catch this, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. When he was before Pilate, he said, we have no king but Caesar. Denied him as king. Lost my place here. You delivered uh, over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. That was Barabbas. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. He's pointing out the irony here. You asked for a murderer to be released and consequently you became murderers. You killed an innocent man, the holy and righteous one, the author of life. I mean, he is declaring unapologetically, unambiguously, the guilt of these people in the sight of God. They have killed the Lord of glory. 
And then jump down to verses 22 and 23. Because Moses essentially forewarned him and he said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. He's saying, Jesus is that prophet. Moses told you, if you didn't listen to him, you'll be destroyed. Guess what? You didn't listen to him. You killed him. And Jesus actually gave a, a similar message in John chapters three and uh, 17 and 18, where he said, I did not come into the world. The son of God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why? Well, verse 18 says, because he who believes in the son of God is not condemned. He who does not believe in the son of God is condemned already. We don't earn condemnation really. It just sort of our birthright. Jesus didn't need to come condemn the world. The world was already condemned. That was the message. And we, we need not, we must not leave that part of the message out in some form, in some language, because Romans 5, 8 says, when we, when we want to just talk about the love of God, we don't appreciate fully the love of God apart from this. Romans 5, 8 says, God shows his love for us. Do you remember the verse? in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what's so wonderful about his love. Like, I, I don't know about you. I know about me. Why did he go on loving me? I'm not sure. I feel like maybe he missed something. I'm just going to, I'm going to keep it secret. I'm just going to go with it, you know? But that's the beauty of his love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in order to understand and appreciate the love of God for what it really is, for what it fully is, we need to understand that outside of Christ, we're sinners and we're guilty before a holy God. And that's what makes the third element of Peter's sermon, of course, so wonderful. And that is that in Christ, we have forgiveness and refreshing and restoration. Look at verses 17 through 19. And then verse 26, as we wrap up here, 17 through 19 says, now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would, would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that your sins may be blotted out. I mean, I, you know, again, I think we're at risk as evangelicals that we hear it so often that we cease to be amazed by it. But the, the, this, this declaration, this free offer to the very people who killed Jesus. Hey, listen, you know what? Our sins put him on the cross. He died for our sins too. We have, we're guilty and complicit in the same death. But you get what I'm saying. In the very aftermath, he declares just unap unapologetically and unambiguously their guilt. And then just as freely turns around and says, if you'll repent, your sins will be blotted out. Just blotted out. That's staggering to me. You see me, I keep saying, I, like, I keep acting amazed by this because I really am. Really, I'm just amazed by that, that your sins will be blotted out. And verse 26 says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness.
He blessed you. He blessed you by sending you this good news to turn you from your wickedness. That's what's amazing about grace. That's what's beautiful about the gospel. And that's the gospel that we're to carry into the world, that we tell people we make much of Jesus. We make much of Jesus. That we tell people that it's God who they've sinned against. You know, you, you hedged on your, um, you know, your taxes and you think you, you probably got one over on the IRS and it's the sort of thing if they question, eh, you could probably, you know, sort of obscure that or whatever. They won't re really be able to pin, you know, pin anything on you or whatever. You sinned against God. And it doesn't matter if the IRS ever figures out. And that flirtatious thing you got going on at work with this coworker, you know, if, you're, if your spouse ever got clued in, you could honestly say, hey, look, nothing's ever, we've, we've not done anything. But Jesus said, you've committed adultery in your heart already. Your sin's against God. But the good news is, he died for that sin, for yours and mine. And, and, and nobody here this morning, nobody here this morning would be able to say they were ignorant of that fact. That the offer is freely made, that in the name of Jesus, your sins can be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come, and that in that time where all things are fulfilled as he promised, that you will be among those gathered in to receive and benefit from that. That's the offer to you and to me. And again, for those of us who have received that grace and professed faith long ago, um, we still are reminded by our own failures, our own fallings, our own sin, um, why we needed him to die for us that we still need that gift of his sacrificial death applied to us in our lives. And that's the good news. That's the package uh, we need to wrap up. Even if, listen, even if it doesn't look real pretty, even if you can't get it packaged together all that nicely right now, get out Jesus crucified, resurrected, go with that. Uh, pray for people, whatever their needs are, and just see what God will do. You want to see the Holy Spirit move as some of you do? Don't keep coming in here waiting to see what he'll do here. Get out on the street. Get out in your neighborhood. Get out in the store, in the parking lot of Walmart somewhere and just take a risk in the name of Jesus and see if he won't do what he said he'll do. Amen. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you for the free offer of the gospel that you uh, gave to us. We thank you, Lord, that you have blotted out our sins for all of those who have uh, believed in you. Lord, and I pray that if there are those even sitting here right now who haven't made that decision, who haven't made that profession of faith, um, Lord, that you would call them out of darkness, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would remove the veil from their eyes and show them what is the beauty and the splendor of your majesty and your infinite goodness toward those who believe. So we thank you, Lord, and pray you'd be glorified in us in Jesus' name.